Well, let's go ahead and get started. I want to uh, welcome you to the first uh, breakout session of oh man of uh, Louisville 2011. How many of you? This is your first uh, first time to be here. Cool. All right. I'm really going to speak to you. Um, how many of you are students? By that I mean you're not getting paid yet. Okay, most everybody that... How many of you are new N students? Okay. All right. Um, well, my name is Daniel Tolan, and uh, let me turn this off. All right. I'm a disciple of Christ. Uh, maybe I'll explain that later. Maybe I won't. Uh, I'm a disciple of Christ. Uh, I'm a physician. I serve with World Gospel Mission, and I've served with them. My wife, uh, Cindy, is here. She can stand. She's the most beautiful lady in the room. Um, ching, ching. Yeah, more points. Um, God, God. I, I mess up so much. I have to get those points every chance I get. Um, from 1989 until 2003, uh, my wife and four kids and I were in Kenya, Africa, uh, where we served as uh, medical missionaries. I'm a, a family practice doctor, and there I did a lot of other things. And uh, worked at a place called Tenwick Hospital, another place called Kajabi Hospital. I also worked with the Kenya Ministry of Health and an educational development uh, program. And since 2003, I've been on loan to the Christian Medical and Dental Association, uh, working in their center for medical missions and doing stuff like this, which I really enjoy doing. So before we get started, though, I need uh, about uh, three volunteers. Uh, all right. We got them right here. I just need you to pick up these chairs and those uh, right back there and just carry them over, the, over there, just somewhere over there. I'm, I'm going to need this space, so. Oh, wait, what's wrong with this picture? Huh? Wait. Okay, now go ahead. What is wrong with this picture? I mean, Paul, why would you pick up the chair you did? It was really, really close, easy to pick up. It was close, easy to pick up. Why would you pick up the chair you did? Just seemed like the thing to do? It looked like she was going back there to get those other ones. Ah, okay. Man, oh man. And this room's hard to get to, isn't it? It's kind of like the unreached, I told somebody. (laughs) What if Pam had some help here? Or what if I got one more volunteer while she was struggling? Where do you think they would have gone? Here? I hope so. Why don't we do that in the church? Ouch. Why don't I put my resources there? Ouch. Um, I'm going to ask you all some hard questions today, even myself. Uh, might not like the answers, might not like the things that you struggle with, but um, I'm becoming more and more convinced that one of the things that we need to do is rethink what we do. 
And what if we couldn't get Pam some more help? Maybe there had been a better way for her to do what she did. Obviously, picking up one chair is a whole lot easier. Maybe you have to do it differently. But maybe all she's seen is how you do it there. Maybe if I just said, you know, you could just drag these chairs over there. You could just drag them with one hand and is pushing them harder than pulling them. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways you can do things. Um, so that's some of the things that we're going to be looking at today. But this is the world you and I enter into as, as Westerners, as people from the developing world. We're seen as the rich, ugly, selfish American that's saying to this little kid with uh, a piece of corn cooking it, Wait, I need this for uh, fueling my fueling my car and for lighting my house and things like that. It's a world who sees us as the ugly and selfish, wasteful America, and we do collectively little to dispel that notion. But you and I are called to be different. We're called to be peculiar. We're called to be Christ-like. But we have to know and realize that who we are already in the world's mind before we go out. But how, um, I ask you, let all the peoples praise him, the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the naked, the imprisoned, the lonely, the isolated. That's what it says in the Bible, let all those people praise him. But how? How? How are they going to do that unless they see Jesus in you and I, unless they touch him, feel him? And by far and away, this is the majority of the people in the unreached world today. This describes them. And unless they teach, I mean, unless they are able to touch and feel and smell and sit beside you and I, they're not going to be reached. And is it really an issue? The problem today really is that the unreached are still unreached. In spite of all of our missionary efforts for the last century, we have huge, huge numbers of unreached people groups. And I'm challenged today in healthcare that we can do something different, that we need to do something different. I broke this down into saying we need to rethink our RPMs. I was trying to come up with something catchy. So I thought, okay, rethink RPMs. We need to think our resources. Uh, utilization and allocation. We need to rethink our priorities, both, both as individuals and as community of believers. And we need to rethink our models and our methods. And all of these apply to uh, health care. Somebody um, shout out an answer to this statement. When you think about uh, missionary health care work, and especially medical missions, among the unreached. I'm bothered by what? What are you bothered by? Political problems. Political problems? Vastness. 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 Overwhelming? Absolutely. Language. Language. Culture? Logistics? Isolation. Quick fixes. Quick fixes. Oh, man. Quick fixes. 
short term, man, I can get this done and move on. It doesn't work. Do you see that in our churches, these things? We're bothered by these things and it's too hard for us? I do. There was a survey we took of about uh, 1,400 uh, people that are preparing to go into healthcare missions in some way. Fully 80% of them said that they want to go to a place like a rural bush hospital in Africa. 80%. That's the traditional model. That's where I went. Um, We did a survey just uh, this last year among active missionaries and healthcare leaders, and 80% of that need had to do with other than that traditional Bush Rural Mission Hospital. There's a disconnect there. We've got to re-educate ourselves in saying, what are the needs? Yeah, I have a dream. Sounds like fun that I could go to a rural Bush Mission Hospital deep in the heart of the Congo or somewhere. And, yeah, you can. You can get a lot done there. Um, but are, are there other needs? Yes, and those are the things I want to look at this morning or this afternoon to cause you to realize that we must look at what we do differently, and we must do differently that which we do now. Now, that's not to say that we're, we've done things wrong in the past, um, after all, my father-in-law was the uh, one who established Tenement Hospital, the first doctor there in 1959. Um, I'm not here to say today that he did everything wrong. But I'm asking you, do we live in a world that's rapidly changing? And is the only thing we can count on in this uncertain, uncertainty of this world that there will be uncertainties? A lot of mission leaders and organizations just met three weeks ago in Colorado. There was a big conference on the changing face of missions in uncertain times. And if we're not prepared in uncertain times to change what our face looks like, we're going to be left behind. Just last week, the world passed the 7 million mark in population. Look around this world, uh, everybody here except Uh, someone brought in a little baby down here, was alive in 1999 when the 6 million mark was passed. Hmm? Billion, sorry, yeah, billion. I'm way behind on her. Um, 7 billion in population, 99, 6 billion. A lot of us were around in 87 when we reached the 5 billion mark. Less of us in 1974 when the 4 billion mark was reached. Why do I bring this up? What does it have to do with what we're uh, looking at today? Because we're not even keeping pace with the world's population growth. There are more people alive today who are unreached than ever before in our history. Now, percentages, people groups, things like that you can talk about, but still the fact remains that today there are more unreached people that do not have access. I'm not talking about people that just haven't become Christians. I'm talking about people that don't have access to even hear the name of Jesus. There's more alive today than ever before. And so I want to, I want to ask us, 
what does that world look like? I'm trying to do three things here today, okay? One, I want to paint a picture of what is the unreached world look like. Number two, um, what, what's a biblical model that we can look at? And then three, what are some current models uh, that I think that we can uh, use in the 1040 window, especially among the unreached people group? The unreached people today really live in a desperate world of poverty, hunger, fear, and need. They don't trust. They don't accept outsiders. Their world is one of suspicion and secrecy. Look at this person way down here with material poverty and fear, with disease, with secrecy, with natural disasters, with spiritual poverty. And we wonder... Why do we attack one, one of these things and this person can't escape their world? Because they are so weighed down by the burdens that they have. And this is the picture of the 1040 window. That great area of space. Let me just back up a second. For those of you who may not be familiar with it, that great area of space from 10 degrees north of the equator to 40 degrees and... Uh, all the way from Africa, the east part, all the way over, or the western part, all the way to uh, Asia. A huge population. Do you know what population in that, reached are, in that area are reached? Less than 3%. What percentage in, the, in this area are the, are the poor? Poorest of the poor in the world. Over 80% of the poorest of the poor live within this window. It's an area of fear. It's an area of secrecy. It's an area of suspicion. It's an area where people do not trust people. So the question I ask you this morning is Jesus, or this afternoon, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Someone says, yep. How would you feel if the person that you led to Christ that morning was killed that afternoon? Would you still think it was worth it? Nick uh, Ripkin has a quote that he uses in his missionary orientation. It says, If you do not believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, the way, the truth, and the life, the very Son of God, and the only way to heaven, if you don't truly believe that, if you have not arrived there yet, then keep your mouth shut, he says. Don't get someone killed for something you're not sure about. And that's one of the things I say to you this morning. When it comes to reaching the unreached, going is not enough. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You're going to be tested beyond anything else. And you have to be able to answer that question in your heart. Is Jesus truly worth it? Because that question will come to you. I was amazed in the... uh, Earthquakes in Turkey just uh, last month. How many of you remember the little infant that was found uh, like in the third day? Anybody know the story of the person who picked that infant up? 
He was a guy from outside of Turkey. He was a uh, disaster relief worker. Goes to disasters all over the world. He'd been working for 18 years to rescue people out of disasters. Do you know what he said? That baby. That baby was the first live person I've ever been able to hold in my hands. Someone asked him, why do you keep doing this? Isn't it discouraging? He said, I had to believe I would hold a live baby sometime. Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? When it comes to reaching the unreached, going is not enough. Going into all the world is often easy, and God does reward obedience with open doors. But staying is much harder than going. Staying in the midst of a lost people with viable ministries and viable approaches is an awesome challenge with multiple obstacles to overcome. And you voiced some of those earlier. Is there a biblical story that we can look at? I love, in the last few years, I've loved going back to the Old Testament and looking at some of the biblical stories and saying, how do they apply to missions? This one comes from uh, Tim Keller. He has an awesome series on the Israelite uh, exile in Babylon. Um, I forget the name of the video series, but it is great. And I would really recommend it to you. You remember the story of the Israelite nation in exile to Babylon. And do you know, how many of you remember who it was that took the Israelites to Babylon? Who was it? I'm hearing King Nebuchadnezzar. So anyway, Tim Tim Keller says that this is an awesome series for us to learn from, and I, I really think it is. Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile in Babylon the elders, the priests, the prophets, the king, the queen mother, the court officials, the craftsmen, and the artisans from Jerusalem. Why did he do that? Why do he want those people? Why do he want those people? Look at that list. Are they the movers and the shakers? Man, those are well-trained people. They're people that are going to shape the Babylon culture. That's what they wanted. They wanted people who could shape the Babylon culture, Babylonian culture. I think this is a good good instruction for us as we go into a difficult place, because what were the Israelite people facing? Here on one end, there was uh, the Babylonian uh, culture that says, lose your spiritual identity but shape our culture. On the other end is the prophets of Israel saying, protect your spirituality. Don't move into the city. Stay away from the city. Stay away from the people. Use it. Abuse it for your own good. And the Israelite people are stuck in the middle. They're saying, we're here. How do we live? And how do we live well? And what do we do? And so what happened? Who sent them a letter? Jeremiah sent a letter, and he said, uh, build houses and settle down. He said, this is a letter from God. Eat what is grown there, marry, have children, establish your family, seek the 
peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is what the God of Israel says. Wow. Why did why would Tim Keller say this is a great... In fact, he says, Tim Keller calls this God's first great missionary effort. Why? Who actually carried those people into Babylon? Who? God did. That's what he says. I have carried you into exile. It's tough there. It's tough there. You don't know what to do. But first and foremost, remind, remind yourself that I'm the one that carried you there. You didn't get yourself there. I'm the one that carried you there. When it's really, really tough among the unreached people group, you've got to know that God is the one who carried you there. It's a great thought to remember when you're discouraged. I carried you into this place, Daniel. I want you to remember that. It must, must have been quite a shock uh, for the people to hear from God saying, You think Nebuchadnezzar carried you there? No, I did. Babylon is a place I carried you to, and this is what I want you to do. Don't lose your spiritual identity, because there will be judgment on Babylon if they do not repent, God said. I want you to take me, the gospel, to them. And this is how. The prophets were saying, no, don't live in the city. God was saying, move into the city. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray to me, the Lord, for the city, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Imagine how astonished uh, the Israelite people were were when they they were hearing their own God saying, serve the common good of the pagan city. Man. That helps me understand something about ministry. I cannot go as a Westerner to a place and not totally embrace that community, that city, that culture. God is telling us, embrace it. Don't lose your spiritual identity. Work for the common good, even if it's a pagan city. Work for their common good. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. I don't think that we can ever set the tone for true ministry and change if we hold back from the communities to which God calls us. Over and over, I hear about missionaries. In fact, I've got a good friend in Tennessee that he lived for several years in the slum of uh, one of the slums in the Middle East. And then he got married. He and his wife lived there a couple more years. Uh, Three days before Christmas, somebody showed up and secret police showed up and said, you've got 24 hours to leave. I asked him, I said, "Uh, why do you think that happened? What were you supposed to be doing there? Well, I was supposed to be doing business what were you? What'd you do as business? Well, I really seven years. I really never got it uh, off the ground. Um, what was your wife doing? Well, she was supposed to be doing some community health and some things like that, but she never got that 
started either. You know what? There's no secrets. There are no secrets in this world. People know why you're there. And if you're not there for a real purpose for which you are doing something good about, sooner or later that will happen to you. So I believe that if we are entering the city in health care, it must be real, it must be valued, and it must lead to building trusted relationships. It must be real, it must be valued, and it must lead to trusted relationships. What do I mean by entering? Entering means gaining access to the point of the community desiring to hear from you. The community desiring to hear from you. Trusting is taking place. That's what I mean by entering. And that takes time. You don't enter in a week. You don't enter in a month. It can take years. And we've got to be committed. And I ask you again, is Jesus worth it? It takes time to build valued bridges. I walked across the uh, Brooklyn Bridge, or part of it, uh, just uh, last month. First time for me to be in New York City. Um, And almost got arrested. But uh, that's a story for another time. But uh, I'll tell you, I was carrying a little knife. I didn't know you could carry a knife in New York City. I had it in my pants, and the loop was shown here, and the police officer said, what's that? And I said, well, it's my knife. He said, well, what do you do with that? I said, well, yesterday I bought a mango. I ate it in the street corner and peeled it and cut it with this knife. And he said, where are you from? And I said, East Tennessee. And he said, well, maybe in East Tennessee. And he put out, <laughs> said, maybe in East Tennessee you can walk down the street with a gun slung over your shoulder. And I said, well, you can if you have a permit. And he said, well, in New York City you can't do that. <laughs> he said, I'll let you go. Anyway, I walked across the Brooklyn Bridge and I thought about this. It took a long time for people to build that bridge. It's visible. There are no secrets about that bridge. You see it. You see what it's there for. And it's usable. It's very significant. Thousands and thousands of cars and people were going back and forth across that bridge every day, improving the communication and access into Manhattan. So I challenge you, if you are working in the 1040 window among the unreached, Build bridges that are time-invested, that are visible for the people, and that are going to be of great significance, that they're usable. Okay, I'm going to skip a couple things because our time is moving fast. Okay, another principle that I really want to look at is that the local disciples, I believe, are foundational to any sustained transformational development in the non-Western world. We're going to come back to this in a little bit. And then we build bridges. Look down at the second uh, thing there. Why? Why do we build bridges? We build bridges to to reach the place where intimate conversations can be had. Where intimate conversations can be had. Are you and I going to talk about much intimate right here in this room? What really bothers us? Hmm? No, we're not. But unfortunately, in healthcare, 
that's the place we often tell people they have to come to to access us. We say, you've got to come to my hospital. You've got to come to my clinic. You've got to come to where I'm most comfortable and where I have control. We've done that for years in Africa and South America. It's worked. It's worked well. Is it working so well in the 1040 window? No, it's not. And it won't. I want to break down the... the, the here's, let me just tell you this lady here. Does this lady look like somebody who's going to sit in a place like this, a public place, and ask questions that really matter to her? No. In fact, you know what? She's probably forbidden by her husband to speak in public. She's probably told, don't you ever ask a question. You can't say anything in public. How are we going to get her to ever ask what the meaning of life is? Or who created her? And for what purpose? And how do you really find God if we don't get to a place where she's comfortable to have those intimate conversations? So I'm going to break down the models that I believe will work in the 1040 window into three basic areas, okay? Teaching and training, community development, and home-based ministries. Teaching and training, community development, and home-based ministries. One of the large cities in northeast China is also one of the more difficult cities in China to live in. Here there is a clinic that primarily cares for expatriates living in the same city, working with large multinational companies. Several missionaries work at this clinic. Man, are you kidding me? I know three doctors that work at that clinic. They're taking care of the rich. Four rich companies. In China. Why? Is it strategic? Why? Why might it be? Anybody have a thought on that? Why it might be strategic? Because they can work 30 hours a week and use the rest of their time to reach out to their neighbors and be legally there. Okay. They're legally there. So many... Okay. They're reaching the influencer. In this situation, probably not. In other situations, yeah. But yeah, that gives them an access for being there. Let me tell you what's happening um, at this place. Students from the nearby university rotate in the clinic. The nearby medical school has about 12,000 medical students in all, all that different healthcare things. Some of them rotate in that clinic. Physicians there teach at the medical school. They formed a newly, uh, a new family practice department, and they teach Chinese residents in this program. As part of the family practice training, a rural health care ministry takes place where staff model what it means to provide holistic and compassionate care. And they've developed now a program where they're working with the barefoot Chinese doctor to help train them and empower them. Formal training takes place on the basis of uh, compassionate care along with all the more important questions that arise with that. A handful of those 
people that they are touched in their teaching and training have become Christians. The local government knows that they're Christians, but they provide a great service in giving health to the upper echelon staff of large companies that bring in money to the city. So they're happy they're there. That's why they're there. That's their access point. They teach in the medical school, um, and there's wide open doors for conversations about Jesus. There's wide open doors for informal conversations about Jesus. One of the physicians works in a program fighting trafficking in persons in the evening in that same city, especially in the area of sex trafficking of young girls in the city. She's known. They know she's a Christian. She's there because she works with that large clinic and with the expats. Valued bridges must be built. They must be visible. And they must be usable. That's a valued bridge that's being built in that city in China. Here's a second example in China, much different than the first. An engineer went to China Through God's direction, he began helping the community access public programs that are already in place. Here's what it looks like in China. Um, A small village has needs. They may have need for water. The local authorities say, hey, we have a water program, but there's a huge disconnect between the government and the local village. Um, this engineer started saying, why, why can't I be a conduit and a bridge between the two? It's grown into evergreen service. There's nothing secretive about this. It's on the Internet. Here's what they say on the Internet. I wrote it down. We're an openly Christian group faithfully serving in China. Our purpose is to assist Shanghai and other Chinese provinces by developing public benefit services for the common people while reflecting the credibility and love of Christ. This speaks to me about the importance of credibility. That engineer has gone on and gotten a Ph.D. in public health and community development. There's others there that are master's degree, trained level people in nutrition and agriculture and other things. It speaks to me about the importance of credibility. It speaks to me about the importance of who the Babylonians wanted in their culture. They wanted the people who could really shape their culture. When you are well prepared, you can be visible. You can be open. And you can have open doors to witness. Now, that's not everywhere. There are going to be places that are much more difficult. Let me back up. Okay. Um, Okay. Time-wise, we're going to skip to the next thing, okay? I want to talk a little bit now about home-based ministries among the unreached. Home-based ministries in healthcare. It doesn't kind of sound quite as exciting as a big, bustling hospital, 
Uh, it doesn't sound quite as exciting as being able to flash slides up in front of your home church and saying, okay, the, you know, we repaired this cleft lip and I this, did this Assyrian section and, you know, you can get a lot more money that way if you have pictures that uh, show that kind of stuff and you can raise more money for your mission. Um, I've been there. I've done those things. I've used those things to raise money. I know what I'm talking about. It's much more difficult to raise money to say, I've worked for 18 years and I've got one live baby. It's much more difficult. Go to any church missions department and tell them that. They're not going to fund you. You know what? We've got to get ourselves in church missions department, uh, church missions committees. Cause some rethinking, some reprioritizing. Um, now, remember what I said about uh, the local church. It's foundational to any sustained transformational development in the non-Western world. This evergreen group, there's about six or seven Western missionaries and about 45 or 50 Chinese people. Um, a good number of those Chinese people have become Christians through working there. And now they are the ones that are running these programs and are doing the discipling, the teaching. And I think that if, if we're going to do foundational work that's sustained, it's going to be because we focus on the teaching and training of nationals uh, within our programs. Now, remember the lady I said she's never going to ask a question in public? Where do you think she's going to be most comfortable asking you questions? In her home. Man, I love it when people come to my house. And we can just, you know, you can unloosen the tie. You can just really let your hair down and, and talk about what's really in your heart. But how do you get there? Is it possible to get there in health care? Is it possible to get there in health care? I really think it is. Our church, Grace Fellowship Church, is hopefully, we're in the process of thinking about this one city in China where this clinic is. We're hoping that we can help them develop a hospice ministry. Now, wouldn't it be cool? All of us get to go to there and we get to go to Chinese home and and uh, we get to change a little bandage and give some shots and see what those homes are like? No, I hope that never happens. You know what I hope happens? I hope that we get a few people, maybe one or two, that are turned on to this and say, I'm going to help the three-self church, the large above-ground church. I'm going to help the underground church. I'm going to teach some people. We're going to start small. We're going to build slowly. And I'm going to teach them what it means to go into a home and to be compassionate and caring. And we're going to go through the steps, formalized steps, of what it takes to establish a hospice program. And then we're going to start finding some of those hospice patients. And wouldn't it be great if the churches in China are known for their hospice work? And does that take... You and me as physicians or highly skilled health care workers to do all that? No. 
But it does take somebody that says, I've got the training, I've got the knowledge, I've got the ability, and we're going to work, work at this. I think hospice is a great, great way to get behind the doors of people's homes. If you don't, if you don't think so, pick up this book by Chuck Fielding. It's not his real name. It's his pen name. He works in dangerous places. Uh, preach and heal and read in here. Read this section. In one place, we walked among the poor and made a few disciples. A report came out in the paper that 50 families had converted to Christianity, I wish. Uh, Someone complained. They reasoned that the gospel could have only entered through us, the foreigners. And so an investigation took place. A lot of families were asked to leave, not from our group. Some people came and they interviewed us for hours. They never asked about Bibles or apostolic activity. We showed them our records of treating thousands of poor villagers, giving them medicines, seemed to pacify them. The next day, I went to an official. I told them we would leave the country. And they said, no, no, doctor. We love you here. We want you to stay. For years, I thought it was a miracle. We had never lied about any of the things that they had asked us. Uh, I I was relating the story to a disciple from that country, though, and he said there was no miracle. Everyone in the area knew what you were doing, but they loved your work. So they never asked the questions that could get you in trouble. And they told the complainants that, or the complainers, the matter had been investigated thoroughly. You were not at fault. A lot of other examples in here. Um, I challenge you. How could you, what are some areas in healthcare strategies where you could say, I could get behind the closed doors of people's homes? Not you specifically, but people that you work with. And then you begin to teach them what does it mean to answer the important questions of life, which are few. That lady in that picture I showed you is going to have the same questions my wife has. Is my husband going to be faithful to me or is he going to cheat on me? Does my husband really love me? Are my children going to be fed? Are they going to be housed? Are they going to be warm? Are they going to be educated? Those basic questions in every culture exist. And it may be that I and my wife go to Turkey because I have the access point as a physician. Or maybe you have an access point of an engineer. Maybe you have an access point as a nurse. You get in there, but it's your spouse who does the real work, who gets to go to each individual house and starts a program of home-based health care ministries. I've listed a few things up here that uh, both Chuck uh, lists in his book and others that I've looked at, and I really think that these are areas that we really, really can make an impact in, in healthcare strategies, in villages, and in communities. Chuck talks about going door-to-door with community health rather than having that lady come to the marketplace. 
going door-to-door with community health, going door-to-door with our tuberculosis treatment. I know a place in Afghanistan, a large hospital in uh, in a big town. Across the top of that hospital, it says Christian something or other hospital. Um, wouldn't it be great if a few of the Christians in that hospital begin going door to door in that city with health care work? It's beginning to happen. They're beginning to look at a hospice ministry for that very purpose. Why couldn't we do that with diabetes? All over the world, diabetes is exploding. Why couldn't we do that with hypertension? Why couldn't we do that with marital issues, raising your family, taking care of your children? You know, I get so many questions in the position I am. I'm an RN. Where can I go in health care missions? You know what? It's getting harder to tell that person what to do. But if we would expand our thinking, rethink our models, rethink our priorities and say, you know what, we need people carrying these chairs, not those three. We need more people carrying these chairs. We've got to rethink our models to reach those places. There's plenty of work and places for people to work and get involved in. This little girl reminds me over and over again about the unreached. I saw her in Lamu, Kenya. She was a little girl she brought in by her daddy at a crippled children's clinic. And her daddy said to me, can you feel her stomach? And I thought, don't you know why I'm here? I'm here because I'm supposed to be taking care of twisted limbs and stuff like that. And I said, sir, what's wrong with your little girl's stomach? Well, she has pain. So I put her up on the table and I pressed on her stomach. I said, sir... I don't find anything wrong with her stomach. I think she's fine. He smiled and he picked her up and started out the door and I was convicted. I said, sir, why did you, why did you really come here today? He said, sir, I'm afraid. I'm very fearful. Why, sir? My son, three years ago, complained of stomach pain. And six months later, he died of a Wilms tumor. And sir, I'm afraid for my daughter. I said, sir, you put her back up here in this table. And dear God, I know I can't at this age feel a kidney, let alone two of them. But God, would you Make it possible. Little girl, I'm going to put my hand under your back and feel your stomach. Take a deep breath. There it is. And and do it over here also. And I felt both kidneys. I said, sir, I think your little girl's okay. I don't feel anything. He said, Dr. I can see that your God has really helped you today. I said, sir, would you mind if I prayed 
said, please pray. And we prayed. In that community, a closed community, behind some closed doors, it saddens me to know if the statistics are right, that by now she'll have been raped three times. She may even be stolen, trafficked somewhere. That saddens my heart. And we need people who are going to go into these communities and say, Jesus is worth it. No matter what I face, if I have to face illness, disappointment, I don't get famous in medical missions, I'm just there, but I'm there doing what God has asked me to do. And God is asking us that today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for what you have done in our lives. Jesus, we want to be your disciples. The world doesn't understand what it means to be a Christian. But even in the Quran, it says the disciples of Christ will be the greatest. And Father, I pray that as disciples of Jesus, disciples of Christ, that we will just walk with you and we will ask ourselves to rethink our resources, our priorities, and the models in which we use to reach people for you. In Jesus' name, amen. My email is here. Um, I would love to talk further with you. I know in a session like this, there's just no way to cover all this in one thing. Um, and uh, if you want to talk further with me this week, I'll be at the CMDA uh, section on the center section, the bottom floor, uh, Center for Medical Missions. I'll be there. So thank you very much. God bless all of you.